when you are just very passionate about something and you're like, this needs to be fixed and nobody's taking care of that, I'm going to do it, you become an entrepreneur. Welcome to The Wagon Live, where each week we bring you stories from entrepreneurs around the world. This week, we've got Christine Renault, CEO and co-founder of E180 and Braindate, a pioneering education platform that's been used by Airbnb, Amazon and TED Talks, to name a few, and has aims to change the way human beings learn from and interact with each other. Enjoy. I'm really excited that, to be here with you uh, as someone who's worked in education. And I wanted to jump right in and ask you, how was it that you got started in education? Bring me back to the beginning, how you decided to go into the field. That's a really good question. Um, so hi, everyone. Thank you for, for being here. Um, so I got started in education because um, since I was young, I was always starting stuff. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that I was a social entrepreneur at that time because I just didn't know what an entrepreneur was, yet mm-hmm. alone a social entrepreneur. Right. Um, but I started like a program to recycle in my elementary school when I was like eight. Mm-hmm. And then a youth center when I was 11, uh, which my mom was the director of the board for like 25 years. Uh, merci maman c'était la maison et que tu écoutes um, and, um, and then I wanted to do theater and then I studied dance and cégep mm. uh, which is a thing we have here in Quebec really fun you can do all sorts of things so I, I studied dance and then I did a uh, international development program mm-hmm. which was more kind of a, a community exchange program in Guatemala in oh. uh, 1999 and that's where I actually learned that the world was unfair and that I was taking advantage as a white woman living in the north of a lot of that um, so it kind of like completely transformed my world as I think if you, anybody here did the Quebec Sans Frontières, you know what, I, what I'm talking about. Um, so then I just realized, oh my God, like I have to contribute. I need to do something. I need to change the world. Like that thing, you know, when you're 18 and you realize that the world is unfair. Right. Um, so I was thinking, should I go into like maybe journalism so I can reach a lot of people or politics? Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking, or oh, maybe education is a place where I should be because mm-hmm. if uh, I was thinking about um, teaching what we call here moral, like morals. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's kind of philosophy. Uh, and, and you have a lot of students when you teach philosophy and high high school. So it's about like 200, 250 students um, a year. So I was thinking like very mathematically, like if I touch with values of compassion and solidarity, 250 students a year for 30 years, and they go on and they touch like that amount of people in their life. Like, I think that's where I could have the biggest impact in in changing the world. So that's how I got interested in education. But then once I came back to education, I was like, oh, wow, that's how we teach our kids like that's what education is is having people sitting down for 18 years listening to what other people think they should be interested in like that doesn't make any sense so then I become uh, an activist in the education system right so yeah talk to me a little bit more about between uh, the becoming an activist and getting in you went to university in here in Montreal right and when you graduated uh did you have that feeling right away or is that something that developed with time and experience I think it really started happening when I was doing my student internships, my mm-hmm. student uh, teacher program. I don't God, know how you say yeah. it in English, internships, you say in French. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I was just there in front of the class and I had to be the person saying like, 
Euh, Roland, enlève ta casquette. Like, remove your hat. Mais why, madame? Mais because you cannot wear your hat here. But I don't understand. Just because it's the rule. Madame, what will be on the test? Well, that thing, but tomorrow we'll talk about, like, civil mm -hmm. disobedience. Oh, yeah. But right. today we have to talk about this thing because we have a test on that. So I, I like, was that person that needed to teach something that even I didn't believe in. Mm. So it really kind of, like disturbed me as, as a human being and I was kind of an anarchist when I was young and I had forgotten about that and I was okay. like oh my god I remember why now this is like so boring uh -huh. so that's when it, it really happened but then I had a professor in my philosophy of education class which nobody cared for about mm -hmm. like me and another student um, and he asked to a point like who here would be interested in starting their, their own school cool and I'm, wow, that's a great idea I didn't even know you could start a school you know, like I didn't even right. know you could be an entrepreneur in education. Mm -hmm. Like it was like you studied, anybody here studied education? Like you studied to become a teacher. You know, you don't study to become a professional educator right. in whichever context. No. So that was the start of like, okay, I could be an entrepreneur in education. Cool, cool. Yeah. And so then the next step, correct me if I'm wrong, was on to Harvard of all places. That's pretty awesome. And uh, what did you study at Harvard? So I ended up in Harvard because I wanted to start a school, and so I just started looking for programs to learn how to build a school. <laughs> well, it doesn't really exist. I mean, not that I knew at that time, right. but Harvard had a program called School Development. Oh. So I thought that was the place where all anarchists would go to study, which is a lie. Like, uh -huh. anarchists don't go to Harvard to study. No. <laughs> uh, I was the only one. And, uh, and yeah, but it was more like a program to help uh, independent school principals to rethink their school. Mm. So that that was that was what it was oh cool yeah. so when you got there did you feel out of place or did you quickly like fit in what was it like to join that environment yeah. i'm just curious you know i think a I lot of people talk about that uh, it's a primaire um, but uh, i definitely felt out of place because mm. i didn't know anything about the schooling system in the states so you know in the mm -hmm. states you have the independent school right. usually pretty privileged mm -hmm. mostly white mm -hmm. so i was with a lot of white older monsieur that were principal of an independent right. school so not exactly the anarchist type. They existed at Harvard, but in like the arts and ed program and the tech and ed program. So I ended up by discovering them, okay. but they were not my immediate surrounding. Okay, no. got it. Yeah. And from there, correct me if I'm wrong, the next step was New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. And podcasting. So can you tell us a little bit about that, about the podcasting? Because I wasn't able to find it. I want to know no. like what it was, what it was that you were podcasting on? So I was working for a thing called Learning Matters. So it was, uh, it's, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a, um, a production company that was specializing in creating education related report in, for PBS. Mm -hmm. So they were covering all news on learning and education mm -hmm. in the United States. So they were doing documentaries and, and reports. So I would take what was kind of left after they did their report or documentaries and create audio podcasts with kind of the leftovers of whatever they had, interviews they had shot or so it was really interesting. It was kind of in the first wave of podcasts, like before Serial. You right. know, Serial yeah. was kind of the second wave of podcasting. Yeah. And that was more like This American Life and Radio Lab that were uh, just, you know, not starting, but that were really popular at that time. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. And I know that E180, your current company, came out of that experience. Can you talk about what it was 
in that experience that helped you develop the idea that became E180? Yeah. I'm sorry for everybody who heard that story a thousand times because that's the story I always tell, but that's the story where um, because I was a podcast producer, I was working a lot with the new kind of social media team because it was like 2007, 2008. So Mm -hmm. it was still like like that thing of, okay, social media need to be managed. This was pretty new. Um, So, and we would use obviously Twitter and Facebook to promote the podcast. So I was really close with that team. So I was kind of getting involved in social media pretty early on. Um, And then I was seeing a lot of people posting these kind of like cry for helps or just when you need to learn something new and you want to pick somebody's brain. So we all do that where you post on Facebook, you know, I'm moving to Montreal. I have no clue where to live. And there's the French thing. Will I be able to survive there? Do you know anybody who have lived in Montreal? I'll pay the beer. I would love to pick their brain. Right. So I was seeing a lot of people posting these kind of like demands or um, uh, query on, on, on Twitter and Facebook. And I was like, wow, that's exactly how I learned everything. I'm really using, even as a podcast producer, my husband is a musician. I learned how to use audio software because of him and his friends. Like, I didn't go back to in, like sound engineering school, you know? So I was like, wow, that's how I learned everything I'm actually using on a daily basis. So maybe there's something there. What if we created a um, social network where people can actually pose those, you know, cry for help and also offers of knowledge and we can connect people so they can learn from each other. Right. Yeah. And that's brain dating now, right? Is yeah, that the term? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was called like one-on-one knowledge sharing meetups for a while and then I I went to South by Southwest I was a speaker and I was waiting for my badge and I I told the guy like yeah so I'm doing this thing like people can you know kind of create their profile online and then they can post their offers and request for knowledge but then they meet offline to share knowledge in person and and he was like oh kind of like like a date I was like yeah kind of a date but it's not to find the love of your life it's really to learn something okay like a brain date (laughs) and I was like Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> that is a great, great story. Yeah. I don't know. This guy one day will contact me because I tell that story all the time. So one day he will be like, hey, where's my due? Yes. Right. Because we trade markets. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, so that was 2000. When was South by Southwest? Um, so we, we launched E180 in 2011, and then okay. people could do knowledge sharing, one-on-one, face-to-face, whatever, meetups um, in coffee shops. But the brain date terminology, I think, came in 2014. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was always the same thing. It was just called a boring thing. I see. And were you still doing podcasting in 2011? No, No, okay. No, no, no. I I did that for like a year. And Uh. then my visa was expiring. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) I know how that feels. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I was like, am I committing for them to sponsor me and stay there for at least, you know, two, three years just to, you know, kind of contribute back. Okay. But I had the idea for E180. And uh, I know there's a lot of funding here for... For, for people who want to start a business. And right. so I imported a husband and we moved back here. Imported a husband. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Take, it's a good one. Take me through the steps. I'm really curious. So you, so that's 2009. You returned to Montreal. 2008. 2008. Okay. And E180 launched in uh, 2011. That's a couple years. And I think there are some of us at Luagon and maybe in the audience and maybe watching on Facebook who have their own ideas. But three years is a long time between idea and reality. Can you talk about those early times and what it was like to try and make that into a reality? Because I think a lot of people want to know. You have a really good questions. Yeah, I don't, I don't have those questions uh, a lot, so I don't have my prepared answer. Um, <laughs> so Oops. It, was, no, it was really interesting. So when I, I had the idea, I came back, um, but I was not a tech entrepreneur. You know, I always say 
that technology for me was just a way to scale something that we were doing with Excel. So just like becoming a tech entrepreneur, understanding how you build technology, like mm -hmm. finding somebody, I was, I was not, and I'm still not a developer, so finding the right person, you know, there's all these people in the world that have a great idea looking for a tech co-founder, I was one of them. So like finding that tech co-founder, and then the whole, um, you know, tech startup scene, like very VC driven, pretty boys club, and I didn't really identify with that, but I didn't understand why. And then I discovered social entrepreneurship, and I was like, oh, this is a bit more me. But then there was the ed tech thing, and I'm like, but I don't want to work in schools and give them iPads, which a lot of ed tech was at that point. Just like, oh, give the kids a bunch of iPads, and then they'll learn better. Um, so it kind of took all of that to say that it took me a good amount of time just to define myself as an entrepreneur and define the project and the revenue model. So to a point, I just like, ran out of money. Like I was thinking and thinking and spending money on like rent and and then nothing, no revenue. So I got a job at ENM, Institut du Nouveau Monde, for the Montréal ici. Um, and that was actually pretty um, an important step in my entrepreneurship journey because it could I could kind of rebuild the financial and mental health by meeting human beings and not being alone in my house thinking right. about this idea and like making money, mm -hmm. learning, prototyping some of the ideas that became E180. Okay. Sometimes like taking a job as an entrepreneur is the best thing you can do, you mm -hmm. know, to learn and to like get back your financial ground as right. well. So that was for me really pivotal in my in my in my journey and then we started prototyping what we call the knowledge markets so we would do uh, that thing with a, a like a theme so like social entrepreneurship and then have four chalk boards and we would take people's offers and requests and write that down on the sub team and then uh, pair people for brain dates okay, cool. so that was kind of the early prototype stage of uh, of that idea of knowledge sharing around certain topics got it got it yeah and actually i want to back up for a second uh for those who are less familiar with uh social entrepreneurship what is that as opposed to regular entrepreneurship or you mentioned the edtech community as well just to just help us understand what that means a little bit more if you don't mind yep <clears throat> there's different uh, definitions of social entrepreneurship um, I think the most common one is um, an entrepreneur that uses uh, the kind of leverage and tools of business to create systemic changes um, so that that I think is the most common definition um, the way I see it for for me as an entrepreneur is um, the idea that revenues and profit propel impact and my social mission so profit for profit or revenues for revenues is not what I aim to do with my life as a human and as an entrepreneur right. for me making money is extremely important because it's the blood of, of my business and my business is my vehicle to changing the way people learn throughout the world so that's that's how I, I see and think about entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship got it cool thank you all right so 2011 e180 is born yes. um, and those first couple of years with E180, uh, people are meeting in coffee shops there, doing their brain dates there. But there was a turning point right at which you started to shift your approach to brain dates as a whole. And that was with the C2 conference. Can I know it's a very common story, but would you mind telling us so we have some context? Who, know, who doesn't know that story? Maybe a lot of people, actually, so <laughs> to be fair, yeah. Perfect, so I haven't told it as much as I thought. Um, so basically we're doing, we have this site, people can post offers and requests for knowledge, you can browse the offers and requests for knowledge, and then you find somebody that you're interested in meeting, you book a meeting with them, which is now a brain date, and then you go in a coffee 
coffee shop and you either share your knowledge or, or receive knowledge and obviously enter into like a meaningful conversation with that stranger. Right. So that's the, the genesis of the, proje the project and it's still where we're going with, with it. Um, but then the problem of revenue is a problem. The other problem is the problem of commitment. So when you, um, you know, I have a daughter and on Thursday night, I want to go see my daughter, like going on a brain date with a random lady that I don't know she might or might not show up. Maybe she forgot. Maybe she's not as interested as I hope mm -hmm. she would be. I have to travel to that coffee shop. Maybe she'll be late. Like the perceived risk of going on a brain date on a Thursday night is pretty high, actually, um, in terms of ROI on your hour, you know? Right. And then when C2 Montreal approached us, they asked us, uh, everybody knows C2 Montreal, a big creative, it's a big creative conference in Montreal, um, like about three, 4,000 people coming from all over the world to talk about uh, business and, and creativity. Um, so they, they had one edition. They asked us, for the second edition, if we could do their B2B platform. And I said, uh, well, we don't do B2B, we do knowledge sharing and peer learning. And they were like, wow, you're a bunch of hippies. Like we have uh, CEOs and CMOs that are coming to this conference. Like they won't relate to this thing at all. Mm -hmm. um, and we're like, well, we all need to learn. And we, as innovators, we all learn from people around us because you know, school and programs haven't catched up yet to what we need to learn. So we exchange best practices. So right. that's what we do. Right. Uh, and they were like, okay, that's convincing. So we tried out brain dates and actually really took off like the first year we had a thousand in three days and uh, this year we had like over three thousand brain dates um, so so that made us realize that not only we could generate revenues by engaging with, with big major conferences and events because usually the person sitting next to you is as interesting as the person on stage at that level um, and then like it what's also interesting is that people are very committed to learning and meeting great people when you travel you know thousands of miles to go sure. to the other side of the world for a conference, you don't want to just be sitting in a dark room listening to that lady on stage. You know, you actually want to mingle with the other attendees, but there's no way to really meaningfully engage to in facilitate that. that right? Exactly. Yeah. It's based on serendipity, basically, right. which is not very efficient when you nope. have 7,000 people all interested in creativity. Right. So, so yeah, so we really found a niche that was good for revenues, but also good for impact when you think that we generate, you know, 500, 1,000, 2,000 brain dates in two, three days. Yeah, it goes back to that math you were talking exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Awesome. And um, now... Does that make sense? Did I lose you? Everybody's yeah. there? Perfect. Yeah. And so now uh, your, your primary revenue comes from, uh, from conferences, but you're continuing to expand brain dates. And I actually read that E180 operates in 70 countries on the website. What is it? In what capacity? I think that's misleading. I don't know. It's funny because another person told me that today and I'm like, I need to change that wherever you found that because it's not true anymore. Uh, um, just in the sense that when we had our open brain date platform, when it was open to the public, right. yes, we had members in 70 countries, uh, but we didn't have 70 countries that were active. Right. Got it. And now we probably, we have clients in, I would say about 10 countries, okay. like uh, a lot in the States and Europe, starting in Asia a little oh, cool. bit. Um, but yeah, but we closed the public platform platform in May, so the one-on-one, right. -on -one, just because the numbers were not there and because we decided not to go for VC money to be independent and, and, and mission-driven, we need to allocate the resources really like um, 
thoughtfully, like we need mm -hmm. to be really thoughtful about the way we invest our human resources and financial resources. So we closed the public platform, but we're reopening it to uh, foster, um, to basically help any community leader that would be interested in hosting their own brain date event on a Thursday night so that they have the tools they need to gather their community to foster an evening of brain days on any given topic. Right. So that we're really excited about like, going back to communities and offering that. Cool. And just out of curiosity, why Thursday night? <laughs> Sorry, I just, that's been on my mind for a while it's now. A, it's a really good question. It could be Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Maybe that's Saturday. Right. Like, yeah, Saturday. Who wants to brain date on a Saturday night? I uh, want to chill out on Saturday Maybe. Right? Yeah. Maybe if it's about like drinks or yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, cool. All right. Um, now, I think uh, bringing it back to entrepreneurship as a concept, um, I think in my experience, uh, there are a lot of people who kind of stumble into entrepreneurship from somewhere else. Um, and that sounds like a little bit like your story. Um, and then there are people who know from the college level that that's what they want to do. For those of us who stumbled into it um, uh, or kind of walked into it from somewhere else, what would you say are, are some tips you have? I mean, I think we can draw some of it out from what you've said. But what are some top tips if you realize, hey, maybe I want to be an entrepreneur? What are things that you should be thinking about and holding on to as you go through that process? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's kind of, um, I don't know how to say that, but I think that people who studied or are interested in something else rather than being interested in entrepreneurship have an advantage mm. because you have a passion. Mm. You're passionate about something. You know something deeply. You care deeply about something. Um, you know the challenges that this field is facing so you can propose a solution and answer. You know, mm. you can propose something new to the conversation. A conversation is already dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think when you want to be an entrepreneur but you don't have an idea that is powerful enough that it will you know sustain you and your motivation for five ten fifteen years mm -hmm. um, I think it's more difficult you know I, I know a lot of people are like I want to start a business but I don't know what um, whereas when you are just very passionate about something and you're like this need, need that needs to be fixed and nobody's taking care of that I'm mm -hmm. gonna do it you become you become an entrepreneur right. you know and you can do it in other ways you can be an, an employee in a company that is very close to your values and where you can be paid to you know to solve a problem but if you feel that that opportunity is not there that's when you create a business mm. so all of that to say that I think for people who didn't know never thought they would be entrepreneurs I think that if you can deal with the risk and the uncertainty of being an entrepreneur but that you're very passionate about something you want to fix or something you want to contribute to the world I think you're in a really good position right and yeah you you talk about the risk and uncertainty were there particular moments in your journey that were particularly uncertain and how did you deal with them because I think from personal experience in China, uh, where I've lived and worked for the past two years, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs who just can't handle that risk and uncertainty. So what kind of moments did you have and how did you deal with them? Well, yesterday and the day before <laughs> yesterday and last week, um, it never stops. And I think that um, the, fi I mean, the financial uncertainty for me is the, is the most difficult one, especially when you start having employees. and. You know, it's like you have to pay people. It's not just me who won't have a paycheck. You know, it's like not 20 people if we cannot make the revenues, you know, so that's always a big thing. Um, but I think the big um, shifting moment for any entrepreneur is when you have a team that 
supports you and all that. You know, I have a financial, like a CFO now, I have a COO, I have people around me to see those things coming and work with me on finding solutions, like the, the biggest, uh, you know, challenges. So, and then it's just accepting that things are never perfect and that it's constantly like being an entrepreneur, what you need to learn is to learn to, to, to be okay with the fact that things are not perfect and things are uncertain and you, something came at you, you never saw it coming and you took it right in your face, you know, like that happens constantly. And yeah. it's just about like, and then, and, and keep on going and learning from, from these things. Right. I know it's like things that everybody says, but I, I think it's, it's true for me. So, so do you think it's, it's that idea, that underlying idea that you have or that passion you have is what keeps you going most? Definitely. Okay. Definitely that and the people around you. I mean, it, for, I'm sure for other entrepreneurs here, it's, it's different, but you know, being convinced, like I'm, I always think if I was to stop some, when it's hard, I'm like, okay, so what are you gonna do? You're gonna stop this and tomorrow what are you gonna do? Rebuild the same thing because that's what I need to do. That's what I want to do. That's what I need to achieve in my life is to tackle this thing called the education system that doesn't make any sense, you know? So. Even if I, si je me plante, I'm, I'm still there tomorrow morning with the same need of right. doing something about that thing. So, um, and then the family, you know, like just being surrounded and being um, supported and, and having people who understand what you're going through and, 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 and care. And it's very important. So that's why it's so important for entrepreneurs to take care also of their family, you know, and not work those like 90 hours a week because then you're fucking alone with your problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that before and it doesn't work very well. Um, cool. So actually I want to talk about maybe a source of support for you because I'm, I'm aware that you, E180 is a B Corp and I think that's really cool. Can you talk a little bit about the process of becoming a B Corp and what value it's added? I'm super happy you're saying that. Um, so B Corp is basically a, a kind of an, um, I don't know how you say it in English, like ISO, like ISO, is that the way you pronounce it? Like a certification? Oh yeah. There you so it's, it's yeah. a certification where you go through an assessment, uh, which is actually really, um, uh, how do you say formative? Mm -hmm. Yeah, formative. Yeah. Um, where in going through the assessment of your practices in terms of environments, in terms of uh, leadership, in terms of education, in terms of uh, how you choose your service providers, your relationships with your community, right. just by going through this assessment of like 300 questions, it really is really humbling. You know, wow, like some people like care about all these things, that it's amazing. Uh, and then basically to be certified, you need to have a certain um, uh, score in the assessment. Um, and then you become a certified B Corp, but then you have your assessment that is kind of a menu for the rest of your life of things you could improve to actually, and I didn't answer your question, but to actually B Corp stands for a business for good. So it's the idea that a benefit corporation, you can be a, a corporation, but actually leverage business as a force for changing, again, like changing whatever you think should be changed in the world. Um, so yeah, we're a B Corp. Yeah. And I really encourage anybody to become a B Corp and I can talk about that with anybody here interested. Yeah, no, there will definitely be some opportunities for that. And a little bit more about B Corp. My understanding is once you're a B Corp, it makes doing business with other B Corps a lot smoother. Is that true? And have you had any experience with that? Um, I know it's a good question. I were recently certified and I feel that it's still something that you need to, um, how can I say? 
to be very intentional about. Mm. You know, mm. like we're a women-owned business. Okay. And do I really like keep an eye out for service provider that are women to support women-led businesses, for instance? Mm. No. You know, but I happen to have a lot of service providers that are women. Okay. But am I intentional about that? Not really. You know, so it's the same thing I think for B Corp where you have a repertory I could go and look and I don't we don't really do that. Right. So it still takes that will and that intention of being again like very uh uh, intentional about the way you choose your service provider or you achieve you know your your operations right no that makes sense i only asked because i was at a bcor me meetup in beijing nice. and we heard that uh ben and jerry's had partnered with a random brewery in that was also bcor and they made ice cream together awesome beer ice cream so That's i guess awesome. the potentials out How there was it called uh i don't know the name but <laughs> it's always I, the best part of the ice cream yeah <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> but you know that just that that partnership potential exists because it smooths out the process, but cool, cool. I'll look into it more. You just like reminded me that I should do that. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's just an idea. But I, I think uh, we're. I don't know where we are on time. Um, I kind of lost track. Yeah, we could open it maybe for questions. Um, but yeah, I, I just have one last one for you, okay. and that's that. How do you see uh, E180 continuing to influence the educational system um, over the next? five, ten years. What's what's your vision for the future? So there's big things coming up. So um, opening the Brain Jam platform so anybody can organize events where their community can share knowledge is the next big step. Uh, writing a first book also on the self-directed collaborative experiential learning. Um, and something I'm super excited about is we're actually going back to my will of starting a school. So um, we're starting a school, we're working now on starting a, a first school in, in 2020, probably. 2000. Uh, yes, or yes, 20. Um, and then creating a foundation where we can actually support any human being who would be interested in starting a, a school where meaningful learning happens. So that's that's the future, changing every school. Cool. All the, all the, the ones that don't support kids' happiness and adults' happiness. Thank you so much. Um, Pleasure. And thank you again for everyone for coming and on Facebook. And let's grab a beer and chat. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Wagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to our series by clicking the subscribe button.